The teaching for this evening comes from Galatians 6, 6 through 10. This is God's word. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me say at the beginning, it's, it's great to be back. Uh, my family and I, we've been gone for three Sundays, and uh, I'm really uh, grateful and thankful to Adam Venable for uh, stepping in while I was away and uh, treating you to some bits of Isaiah. Um, I trust that it was uh, good for you. I was here for at least uh, last Sunday, so I got to hear some of it. I'm glad you got to hear all three. But tonight we're back in Galatians. We'll be in Galatians tonight, and then next week, and we'll be done. And if you're at all curious about what's coming next, we're going to take a break uh, for the, throughout the rest of the summer, and for the most part, throughout the fall, we're going to look at a section of the Psalms. We're going to look from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, and if you are curious at all about why those, uh, those Psalms, you should go read them and see, I'll just leave it there for you, you go see what you think binds them all together. Why might we look at all of those psalms as, as a unit? Um, but we'll start those um, in, a, in a couple weeks. But before we look at our passage tonight, I know it's been uh, several weeks, I thought it might be worth uh, recapping a little bit for us uh, where we've been in the book of Galatians, especially as we come near to the end. If you remember, uh, this is a letter that Paul has written to a group of churches uh, around 50 AD. It's perhaps one of the earliest letters that we have in the New Testament. And he writes to these churches out of great concern because, as you notice in the earliest verses of the book, uh, they're tempted to turn to another gospel. And it's another gospel of a very subtle kind. It's not as though these churches were saying, hey, we don't believe in this Jesus stuff. We think you're crazy, Paul, for believing in Jesus as the Messiah. What's actually happening is they do believe in Jesus as the Messiah, that they are sinners, that they do need rescue, but they need to add to what Jesus has done. They need to, in their own efforts, make themselves acceptable in God's sight. That Jesus is good as far as he went, but you still had to become Jewish. You had to take on all of the food uh, laws and all of the special feast days and ceremonial washings. And the one that features most prominently in this book is you had to be circumcised. And Paul is saying that is really no gospel at all. If you add anything to Jesus, you actually are taking everything away that he came to do. Because 
as he says in the first half of the letter, where he defends this gospel, he explains that the gospel, the good news of Christianity is that you are saved by grace. You are not saved by your performance. You are not saved by how good of a husband you are. You're not saved by how good of a Christian you are. You're not saved by how good of a son or daughter you are. You're saved by grace alone. And Paul tells us in verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And to support that claim, he goes on into chapters 3 and 4. And throughout those two chapters, he shows from the Old Testament, particularly the story of Abraham, how Jesus is the fulfillment of this whole story, of all of God's promises to bless the nations, that that story comes to its climax and its conclusion and its fullness in Jesus. And therefore, faith in him Trust in Him, resting in Him, is how we receive these blessings, these promises, and all that God has for you. But then as we move to the second half of the letter, chapters 5 and 6, Paul, there's a big uh, transition in chapter 5, verse 1. Paul now, in light of this gospel, this salvation by grace, good news, he begins to talk about, well, how are we to live? How should you respond to this message? Because there were some in these churches who were saying, well, you need to do these certain things. You need to continue to obey the law in order to remain right with God. And Paul is saying, There's, that's not exactly right. And so he begins chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. This is Paul's letter of good news, of freedom. And so throughout chapters 5 and 6, he explains what this life of faith, this life of freedom actually means. That it's not a freedom from all constraints to you can just do whatever you want. It's not, um, nor is it a a life where essentially it's described as a do-better, try-harder moralism, that neither of those are what Paul has in mind. Instead, what we find in chapter 5, Paul describes a life of faith as living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. That Gospel freedom, the free life in Christ, is a life in the Spirit. And we looked at that a few weeks ago in chapters five, in chapter 5, and we'll touch on it again tonight some. But at the same time, even as he describes this, it's also a life of conflict. In chapter 5, verse 17, Paul describes how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and our fleshly desires are in conflict. That part of what, what, what Paul has said is that to become a Christian means that you are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That Christ is in you. And Jesus' life in you by the Spirit is in conflict with your desires. 
And as he continues, he doesn't leave us there with this conflict as if uh, the outcome is up for grabs. He actually says, no, no, you see, if you belong to Jesus, there's good news because those desires that come from within, that wreak havoc in our lives, however well-intended, are replaceable. That Jesus is about the business of not just forgiving us and then setting us on our own, but actually renewing us and remaking us from the inside out. And so as we near the end of this letter and we come to our passage tonight, Paul has, gives us, in the passage we looked at just in front of this one, just before it, and tonight, two images, if you will, or two metaphors for understanding or thinking about the life of faith. And several weeks ago, in, in uh, the first bit here in ch- of chapter 6, the image that Paul gives us is bearing one another's burdens, burden-bearing. The first image that he gives to help us to understand, to get our minds wrapped around, what does it mean to live a free life, actually means bearing one another's burdens. And he says in chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the first image. What's the second image? The second image we could find in our passage tonight, and if you notice in verses 6 to 10, notice just briefly the repetition of the words sowing and reaping. Verse 7, he says, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. Do you hear that? Again and again, we hear these words of sowing and reaping. In other words, this passage is about gardening. Paul is likening the life of faith to gardening or farming cultivating. And so what I want to do with you tonight is to try to get you to see that you have to see yourself as a gardener if you're to understand the life of faith. And if you're going to be able to persevere in the life of faith. So what I want to do is look at why do we need this image? Why do we need to understand the life of faith in terms of this image and metaphor of gardening? And then what is it? And then thirdly, how do we do it? How can we do it? So first, why do we need it? Then what is it? And then how do we do it? So first, let's look at why do we need this? Look at verse 7, verse, and then towards the, uh, the second half. Paul here says, Who, what, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Whatever you sow is what you reap. Now, just to get us thinking about this, take agriculture or farming again or gardening. Some of you, I'm not a gardener, so I'm having to learn a ton. <laughs> there are some of you who could probably preach the sermon and talk about gardening and, and convey some of this far better than I could. But think for a minute about just agriculture and how in the Bible, what Paul is saying here is an immutable principle, an unchangeable part of reality. And let me just highlight one place where we see this. In Genesis chapter 8, after the flood, 
God says to Noah, after he has put his rainbow in the sky, saying, never again will I wipe out the earth. Never again will I destroy life. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Seed time and harvest, sowing and reaping, it's part of the fabric of life as we know it. And what Paul wants us to see is it's just not only in agriculture. You and I are sowing and reaping every single day. And he wants us to see that and help us to figure out not just why we need it, but what it will look like. Why we need it is because it's part of the way things are. It's part of the fabric of reality. It's the basic pattern of the life of faith. Think about, again, the farmer. If the farmer wants a harvest, he has to sow seed. And not only that, the kind of harvest harvest depends on the kind of seed that he's sowing with. He can't sow with wheat and expect to get tomatoes. What the seed he uses to sow with determines what kind of harvest he will have. Not only that, if he sows a good seed, it'll produce a good crop. But with, with bad seed, it'll produce a bad crop. And if he sows with a lot of seed, he'll have a big harvest. But if he's stingy and, and holds on and doesn't sow with a lot of seed, he probably will have a very small crop. Now, Paul gives us this principle in verse 7, and he emphasizes it with uh, two, two warnings I want you to see there in verse 7. He says there at the beginning, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He's telling us about how life really works. But he prefaces it with these two statements, these two warnings, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What's he telling us here? Well, first of all, very simply, he's telling you to pay attention. He's telling you to take seriously the way God has designed life to work. Do not be deceived about how life really works. Do not think that you can be unfaithful as a spouse and then have a beautiful marriage. You cannot sow with wheat and expect to get tomatoes. Do not be deceived about how life really works. But then also he says, God is not mocked. This term here, mocked, has the, carries with it the idea of outwitting. Don't think that God's not paying attention. Don't think that just because perhaps there are things in your life, seed you're sowing, that you really like, but perhaps you know deep down is really bad seed. Don't think just because there aren't immediate repercussions or things are actually going well in light of what you're doing, that God is not seeing. Again and again, what we see in the Bible is that God looks on the heart. He not only sees what we do, 
but he sees why we do it. And you see, this is why we need this image of gardening. Because this image of gardening helps you to see your life clearly. So if that's why we need it, let's look a little bit here at what it is. What is this life of gardening? Notice in verse 8, he goes on and he describes there are two kinds of sowing, two kinds of gardening. There's sowing to the flesh, that is, to our own selfish desires, living for self, what we want, however good and well-intended those things may be, but in the end, have no regard for God or other people. And sowing to the Spirit. When he mentions here, sowing to the flesh and sowing to the Spirit, we need to remember earlier in chapter 5, where Paul had talked about, remember this conflict between the flesh and the Spirit. And Paul even talks about and lists for us, what are the works of the flesh? And he says, in fact, in verse 19 of chapter 5, they are evident. They're very clear. These are not hard to see. But again, remember, he says, don't be deceived. While they may be very easy to see, some of what we, the works of the flesh, sowing to the flesh, is really hard for us to see. And here he lists things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. All of those are sowing to the flesh. And what do they lead to? He says they lead to corruption. They reap corruption. See, here Paul is pulling back the curtain for us and helping you to see when you see your life as a life of gardening, that you are a gardener, you are that, you're, you're able to begin to discover how your life really works. That when you sow to the flesh, what comes from that is personal, moral, and spiritual breakdown. It's like rust on an old car. Over time, it begins to deteriorate and crumble and fall apart. But then there's sowing to the Spirit. And Paul, again, here he actually has in mind verses 22 to 23 of chapter 5, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That sowing to the Spirit involves things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And he says, these things lead to life eternal, to eternal life. And here he has in mind life in the fullest, richest, deepest sense. Eternal life in the sense of at the end of history, when God's story reaches its fullness and the Lord Jesus comes back to make all things new, sowing to the Spirit, living by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, is how you make it home. But not only that, sowing to the Spirit is how you here and now enter into an ever deeper and fuller and richer wholeness 
as a human being. It's how you're conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, listen how he describes, if that's, these, there are these two kinds of gardening. He, he helps us to understand that not only does, does the sowing to the Spirit here lead to life for you personally, but it has radical impact on the community. Notice what he says here in verse 10. He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He says, do good to all, especially the household of faith. Now, why does he say it like that? Well, I think there are two two dangers that he is helping us to avoid. There's a balance here. When he says, do good to all, he's guarding against exclusivism. Think the parable of the Good Samaritan and the lawyer who came to Jesus and the question he had was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan essentially to say, everyone is your neighbor. If you are a follower of me, there is no one to whom you should ever look at and think, I don't have to think about doing good to them. As you have opportunity, do good to all. But the second aspect here that this guards against is, a, is an external religion, just a formalism, just doing the right thing without considering the heart. Because he says, you know, it's not just doing good to all, but I want you to especially keep in view the household of faith. That means other believers, those closest to you, and perhaps sometimes those who are the hardest to love. You see, he's guarding against the idea that sometimes, you know, it's actually easier to do good to other people and to feel really good about that and yet ignore those closest to you. So Paul here is giving us two, two sort of warnings. He's giving us a balanced understanding of what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? It means to do good to all especially to the household of faith. And then briefly, he gives us an interesting example in verse 6. In verse 6, this passage begins with, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, commentators across the board wrestle with, why does Paul put this verse in here? It seems like it just doesn't fit. It just seems out of place. And I understand that and and have wrestled with that myself, but the more I've looked at this passage, I think it fits, especially when you read it in light of verse 10. Because in verse 10, again, do good to, to all, especially the household of faith. If you have the idea of this, of the household of faith, God's people, the church, local, a, a physical local church, then verse 6 fits very, very well. Because in verse 6, what's he talking about? He's talking about people like you, Christians, who receive teaching and instruction and care from those whose full-time job is to sow the seed of God's Word into your life. 
Paul talks about this in much more detail in chapter 11 or chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians. And in verse 11 there he says, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this is an example of doing good to all, of how sowing to the Spirit is a mutually life-giving pursuit in the church. Here is where we get the idea uh, from the scriptures that pastors are to be paid from the congregation. We didn't just come up with that because we wanted to give somebody a full-time job. It's because the scriptures actually point us in the direction of Jesus wants you to have pastors in your life whose primary job is to spend their time sowing the scriptures into your life. That's what I've been called here to do. That's what Matt is being called here to do. And we are mutually sowing together to the Spirit. And it's that collective work and common life together that enables us to pursue this life of gardening as a community. Now, if that's what Paul means by gardening, how do we do this? First, I think we need to recognize the challenges here. Look in verse 9. And let us not grow weary for, of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. He says, let us not grow weary. Now, the implication here is, if you take this seriously, and you begin to understand that your life of faith is a life of gardening, of sowing, in the help and with the help of the Spirit, gentleness, patience, kindness, you're going to be worn out. You will become weary. Think about, and you will be tempted to even give up. Think about, Marriage. Are you listening to me? I thought I already told you that. Why don't you listen to me? Why don't you understand me? Two ships passing in a night. How do you hang in there? Or what about parenting? Whether you're, you're the parent of young children and you find yourself beating your head against the wall because perhaps despite what you do, they will not do what you would like them to. <laughs> no matter how many times you say it, no matter how many times you explain it or show them, they don't do it. Or maybe you're the child and you think, my parents, they just don't understand me. They don't listen uh, they're manipulative, they're passive-aggressive. Maybe you might still be living at home. They just seem to yell all the time. How do you not give up? Or think about your own struggles with sin. I don't ever seem to make any progress. This seems futile. 
You see, gardening frequently carries with it a deep sense of futility. Just think about if you've ever tried to weed a garden or a flower bed. The next week, there are more weeds to pull. It feels futile. You feel like you're running in place. You never can get past these stupid weeds that keep growing over and over, and you have to keep pulling them. There's a sense of futility. Now, how are we supposed to deal with that? I think the answer to that is here in verse 9 also, where it says, in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In other words, you need a hope that's bigger than your weariness. You need a hope that can lift your eyes above the futility. And I want you to see as we come to a close here that your gardening, the life of gardening, doesn't happen in a vacuum. It actually takes place within the gardening work of Jesus. And I want to point you to to one verse in John chapter 12 that I think really needs to frame everything I'm saying and everything that you think about this idea of your life as as gardening. Jesus in John chapter 12, it's, it's just after he has entered into Jerusalem on Passover week, the triumphal entry, the last time he's entered into Jerusalem and he's on the way to the cross and he's speaking about his coming glory. But throughout the book of John, when Jesus talks about his glory, it always presupposes his suffering and his death. That his suffering and his death on the cross is actually the heartbeat of his glory. And he says this very profound thing, speaking about himself. Listen, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about himself. Jesus is talking about his own life as a life of gardening. And it's a life of gardening for Jesus, that, a life of sowing unto a harvest, of sowing that's not just good teaching or a good example, but his very life in order that you might have hope in the midst of your sowing. Because a lot of times, sowing, gardening, is, feels futile. Look at Jesus' life. Look at how it ends. Does that not seem like futility to you? The most gracious, gentle, wise human being ever is rejected. No matter what he did, his disciples couldn't and wouldn't listen to him. Futility. But you see, Jesus, he comes to sow his own life through dying on the cross so that your life of gardening might reap a harvest. Now, how do you know you're going to get there? Well, we've already mentioned this briefly, that to belong to Jesus means he now lives in you. Put it another way, the very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if you belong to Jesus, now lives in you. The power of resurrection life 
is at work in your life. That means you no longer sow to the Spirit in your own strength. You no longer live on your own. Jesus lives in you. His life is at work in you. That's the here and now. But what about the there and then? This sowing work of Jesus has in view there are better things yet to come. The very end of the Bible ends with Jesus coming back to dwell with you, to make everything new, to bring a harvest of fullness, of life, of peace, where there's no more tears, there's no more weeping, there's no more sorrow, there's no more sin. Now, how can you take this passage and begin to work it into your life? I was thinking about this this week um, again and again, probably because I've been outside in my yard working a lot. And I just put this to you. Uh, Go find some dirt. Go find some seeds and plant them. And watch what happens. And read through this passage. Do it with your roommate. Do it with your kids. Do it with your spouse. Do it with a friend. And ask God to show you, Lord Jesus, show me how to sow to the Spirit, how to live in the freedom that you've come to give. Help me to see, even through this ordinary thing of planting a seed, tending to it, cultivating it, watching it, seeing the harvest come, how does that help me understand the good news of the gospel? That's just one way, one idea, how you can take this passage and work it into your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage, and we ask that it would be true of us, that you would help us to live by the Spirit, that you would protect us from thinking that is something that we somehow conjure up, somehow we earn something that we have to uh, attain to rather than receiving it as a gift, received by faith, resting in you, and living by faith, knowing that you are at work in us by your Spirit to make us like you. Would you please do that? For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.